You're listening to Wake Up Call with Christina Previtt. I'm the CEO and co-owner of New Jersey Divorce Solutions, a law firm located in Edison, New Jersey. I've been practicing exclusively divorce and family law for the past 16 years. Everyone has a story. I interview them. Wake Up Call is an opportunity for you to hear inspiring stories from people who are making hard decisions, overcoming their fears, and living their most authentic life. All right, we are here again for Wake Up Call, the podcast, the Femme Squire series. I haven't done one of these in a while. And Diana, you're the perfect person to do this with me because you are absolutely a veteran on this show. You did one Femme Squire interview, and then you've been on countless other Wake Up Call live streams to talk about various subjects. So I almost feel like I need to make you a co-host at this point. Well, thank you so much for having me back. And I think when I originally did my first FemSquire interview, it was after I had seen you interview a friend of mine. And I said, I have to, to do this. This is such a cool way to highlight other female attorneys. So I think we have a lot to talk about because the first time we did this, it was right around the time the pandemic started mm-hmm. and things were really different then. Mm-hmm. It was, we were sort of developing a new normal. And that was probably two years ago. I I always think of the pandemic as starting around March, 2020. Yep. And I think our interview was in October of 2020. So we were kind of in that initial six months when we were really still finding our footing and the impact that the pandemic was having on our lives and our work structure and family law, which is my area of specialty and how we were managing the work-life balance, all working from home while still in the throes of a really scary pandemic situation. It was drastically different. And I think a lot of what we were talking about was some of the novel things that we saw come up in family law that we never had before. Obviously, divorces were through the roof, domestic violence. We were seeing new custody issues come up that we had never seen before from even parties and and clients that were settled for for years. But now because of the novelty of the COVID issues related to their children, they were coming back. Yeah. And you know what's interesting is a lot of people were sort of waiting for the pandemic to be over. Like I still hear people say, well, COVID's over. Mm. COVID's not really over, but if for people that are just waiting for us to go back to normal, to go back to pre-pandemic, I hate to break it to them. That's yeah. not going to happen. Life is just different now. You know, there's like, there was a new normal in March, 2020 and, and shortly thereafter, but now there's even a newer normal. It's yeah. like life has just changed. And I want to talk to you more about that because we initially talked about how you were dealing with work and managing a law firm during a pandemic and during quarantine, but now we're past that. And I really want to hear about how you have shifted gears. You know, what were some good things that maybe came out of the pandemic, how you've changed your practice and really just how you've evolved? Yeah, that's a really great question. I think initially when we were in those first six months of the pandemic, offices and firms and attorneys were struggling to adapt to managing the day-to-day changes that the court was throwing at us in terms of closures and virtual appearances with also our home lives and working from home with toddlers knocking on our home office doors. But I think what our firm at least has done, and I think that this has been a huge wake-up call for us, was we understood 
what could remain virtual, what could be done at home, what we were demanding of our attorneys and not. And I think for us, now that we have returned to the office, the three partners at my firm, and we have one associate as well as some interns and, and support staff, we're not there every day. We're there maybe two to three days. And we decide which days we're in the office based on our workload and our family load. So if there's like, for example, this past week was the end of school. So if there was an event at one of our children's school, we needed to be there. So we worked from home in the morning to go to the event in the afternoon. And I think though, at the very beginning of the pandemic, there was much more of a solidarity with parents, understanding that that was something that had to happen. I've seen it shift back a little bit. There's a little less understanding and we're in a hybrid now. So some court appearances are in person, some are virtual. Some you know, meetings are happening in person, some are virtual. Our office has taken the approach that whatever works and serves our clients best. But one of the big things we've noticed is no one has asked to come meet with us in person. Initial consultations, existing client meetings, no one wants an in-person meeting. Everyone is electing phone or video. And we appreciate that. Candidly, I think it allows for more efficiency, but also um, sensitivity because of the issues that we deal with. I think it allows for a more open-ended schedule. It allows clients more availability. They also don't have to tell an employer where they're going. They can do it on the lunch break or just log on pretty quickly. So that's been the biggest, I think, shift is we really haven't fully gone back to everything being in person. A lot of those people are probably working from home anyway. Correct. Yeah, I think that they are. Yeah, it's interesting. Before the pandemic, I remember having a really brief conversation with my partner about going virtual mm -hmm. and we dismissed it. We were like, people won't do that. We're just too stuck in our ways. People do things in person. That's what they want. And then the pandemic happened and it's incredible. It's like a complete and total shift. I hardly ever get anybody who asks to meet in person. Mm -hmm. And we all just accept this as the way that we live and do business now. I agree. I agree. How has your practice changed in such a way that you think it would never have happened were it not for the pandemic? I think, you know, I've been practicing now 12 years and going into my 13th year, lucky number 13. And I think in the beginning, you know, we really um, were obviously customer service based, but I think with the pandemic, I was able to set some more boundaries with clients. I was able to be a little more um, open and honest, a little more human. I think that clients really appreciate an expectation set and a level set. Also knowing that we aren't just, you know, some suit, that we are people, that we, you know, are giving them legal expertise, but also an understanding as, as parents, as people, as women. And I think that's changed a little bit. I, I think that the practice of law has always had this sort of reputation for being stuffy and, you know, Navy suits. But now I think that there's a little bit more of a relaxed vibe, at least what I'm experiencing in family law. And I appreciate that from the perspective of my practice. But for me as a practitioner, I've been a lot more choosy in terms of who I work with and how much attention I give to each case and how I you know, manage my clients and give them that time and attention. Whereas when I first started out, I was probably taking anything that I could to come in the door. And it, it was really stretching me thin, both physically and emotionally. And I don't think I was serving anyone well. So now I'm learning a lot better about how to really make sure that clients get everything they need from me. Plus, I'm also a manager now, you know, as a, a one of three partners, 
Um, we have an associate we're looking to expand, maybe bring on another associate. We have two interns that, that work with us, co-op students, and also working with two support staff that we manage. So I've really honed how we can all work together as a well-oiled machine. And I don't think that we would have communicated as well um, in an actual office setting, which I know sounds counterproductive that when you're physically there, you're communicating less, but people had a tendency to just keep their head down, close their doors. Now I've noticed though, that you have to take that extra step to pick up the phone, send an email, a text when you're in separate locations, and it allows people to communicate more. So we have an, a more effective way of managing our firm and our practice that I find to be much more efficient. Well, a lot of people got really fatigued with not having that human contact. Like mm -hmm. I, Zoom was a godsend. It was convenient and it allowed us to at least continue to have maybe some semblance of normality. Like everybody was doing Zoom happy hours. And that was really great because human contact is so important. Mm -hmm. Just We're social animals, right? We need to have that that sense of camaraderie and um, just connecting with other people. But I can't help but feel like there is something a little lacking when you do everything by Zoom, right? Like I, there's yeah. just something you get by being in person. How do you, how do you balance that now? I agree with you. And I think I do this with my clients too. If we've been exchanging email after email, I will then say, Hey, let's hop on a phone, a phone call. Let's schedule a phone call to check in, to recalibrate, to make sure we're still on the same page because they need to hear your voice and let alone, you know, physically see you. But with our office, that's why I think it really works for us right now that we're doing sort of some days in the office, some days not. And we try to coordinate which partner is there. So there's always one partner there interfacing with everybody. And we do firm lunches, we do firm meetings, all hands on deck meetings. So we recognize, and I agree with you that needing to have that check-in and that human interaction is super important. And I think it's also the same with, with the court as well. There's a difference between feeling like you're being heard when you're physically sitting there or standing there, as opposed to, you know, a phone call and the judge can't really see you or a virtual Zoom and, and everybody's trying to talk over each other. So I, I agree with you there. I think the importance is checking the temperature and recognizing when your staff and team needs that contact, but also balancing the efficiency side of everything with being able to still work remotely. I just think it's incredible that we needed a pandemic to kind of push us, you know, push our field and the court system sort of, I always say into the millennium. Mm -hmm. Because we had all this technology before. It wasn't like this technology was created because of the pandemic. This technology existed before. We just really were grossly underutilizing it. So I'm asking you to speculate, but do you think that in some way that was a blessing? The pandemic was a blessing for that reason. Do you think we would probably still be doing things the way we were before with no real attention to efficiencies and using technology? I do. And I think my firm and in my practice, we've always been tech forward. We've always wanted to have a cloud-based system so that people could work anywhere. We always wanted to have a backup. We have a, cl a client firm management program that we use, but I'll give you a real, you know, real-time example that's not just speculation of the three partners at my practice. One of them was a little less you know, on board with the advancements in technology. And I get it, you know, she wanted to be able to still have that yellow legal pad and, you know, have letters typed and, and review them on paper. And sometimes that works. But I think that had the pandemic not happened, she wouldn't have seen the benefit as much 
to a fully paperless or a fully technologically savvy firm. And I think it really opened up everyone's eyes to show what could be more efficient. And I think the biggest example of this is with the court. I think that some of the courts have really found what can we keep virtual, even though some things are coming back in person. A lot of the courts are triaging smaller conferences to make them phone or virtual. Things that they know are only going to take 15 minutes. They don't need to drag litigants and attorneys down to wait for four hours to be heard in the courtroom for, you know, 15, 20 minutes. And I think that that was something that the court also was never going to recognize if we didn't see the pandemic. So those are the, the silver linings. I think that taking a bright line stance of either everything needs to be back in person or everything needs to be virtual is no longer a fit for everyone right now. So that, that hybrid stance really works. But again, I, I think you're right. Those programs were out there. Zoom was out there. It was available to us. And the client management programs were available to us to keep everything virtual in one place. But now I think the, the, the skeptics are now on board. It's interesting because so many people just resist change. Mm-hmm. And let's face it, when something changes, you do have to put a little bit more effort into it because you're not on autopilot. So you have to sort of learn, especially with technology. You know, I did not, I'm old enough that I didn't grow up with an iPad in my classroom or a, really a computer. So, right. But the kids today, I sound old saying that, but kids today, <laughs> they're not going to ever know a life without an iPhone or an iPad or a computer. So there's not really a great learning curve, but for a lot of the rest of us, there's a significant learning curve and it's hard sometimes to kind of grasp that it, especially if you still have the books, the papers and the pens and all that. And you can just kind of gravitate towards that because that's easy. But now that we've kind of been forced to use technology. And we've all, I think most of us have gotten over that hump and there's just kind of this new efficiency. Mm-hmm. Have you seen like new problems that pop up? Like it will solve some problems, but then there's like new problems that pop up. So are there new issues that you've seen in your cases that maybe didn't really exist before? Yeah, that's a great question. I think with everything, you know, nothing's perfect. So of course there's glitches in technology. I mentioned we use a um, a case management or a firm management program. Sometimes it goes down, you know, that's rare, but it, it does happen. Um, sometimes there's things that we need from an assistant and her program isn't working, but mine is. I, I think from the perspective of people getting on board, I have not had a client have any issue, even you know older generation clients. I think everyone at this point understands how to use Zoom and they understand how to you know upload things. I really can't see a downside to the technology of it at this particular point. And there haven't been new things that have come up that I think have made us feel like, oh, we should go back to the old style. Um, I think that everything is done much more expeditiously. The one thing I don't love is, and this is specific to my practice in Philadelphia, is they had such a volume of cases. And I understand being one of the largest cities in the country, they couldn't scan paperwork in as quickly. So they still do use mail. And that's my biggest frustration with them. You know, my Philadelphia office is three blocks from the family court. We get mail two weeks later. It is very slow. And I would just rather that they, you know, email something to me. Um, So some of the privacy uh, pieces of it, and that's what the court ultimately says, is we don't have the volume to protect, you know, all this paperwork coming in. And that's why we can't disseminate it to you quicker. But, you know, that's, that's the only 
thing that I've seen that's a huge hiccup, but everything else, it's a positive to have this technology. I have to say, I don't understand why I still get court notices in New Jersey for, you know, scheduling notices for court matters. It's amazing to me that I'm still getting them in the mail. And sometimes you do get them after the court appearance. Yep. Mm-hmm. I don't um, understand it either, especially when usually the court clerks in New Jersey will reach out to you to schedule and you've already had that communication, either phone or email, and then you get the notice and the notices in New Jersey are typed so analog, even just the way that they, you know, their boilerplate forms look. And you're right. Sometimes they even come up the day after the hearing or the day of the hearing. So they should just give it up with the mail. I, yeah, they need to change the court rules and I have a feeling that's coming, but the law is always very slow to catch up, which, which again, you know, my point was that the pandemic like really pushed everyone to say, it was like the universe was saying, okay, people, you need to stop whatever you're doing right now. Um, you know, take some time to reflect and change some things. I see you have a chill pill pillow <laughs> behind you. Everyone needs to take a chill pill. I agree. And I, I think I even said that in my first interview with you that this was the universe's way of telling us to slow down and to recalibrate. There really wasn't um, a trajectory that we were on that was going to be successful and sustainable. And I think that this now allowed us to reset so that when we move forward and we continue to practice law or, or go about whatever profession that we're in, we can do it with a renewed sense of, okay, we can sustain this and, and move forward in the future. Well, you've done that very well. You're a great example of someone who has just rolled with the punches. And the last time we spoke, we talked about some specific issues that your clients were having that I think are have evolved or are a little different now. Like for instance, I know one of the things that was a big issue for parents during the, the really the height of the pandemic was disputes about vaccinations. And I want to talk to you about that because I'm sure that hasn't completely gone away. But also parenting issues, like there were people that kind of felt like, well, should we put parenting, the parenting schedule on pause? Because if one person has the type of job where they were still going to work and having contact with people, there were, you know, the other spouse or ex-spouse would feel like, I don't think I want the children to be around you because you're exposing them. So the court didn't really know what to do with these. So I want to hear from you you know, are you still seeing issues like that? Um, and how has that evolved over the past year or so? Sure. So I don't think we're seeing them as strictly because uh, the severity of the spread of the virus and the level of case transmissions has drastically reduced. We're not seeing people put their custody orders and their schedules on pause. That's not happening. We are seeing disputes about vaccination still, and the court is finally catching up and hearing some cases on that. Um, we're slowly getting trickles of determinations. Um, in New Jersey specifically, when the issue of vaccination has come up, it comes into the court on an emergency basis. And what we've found is that the best interest of the child standard has prevailed and the court looks case by case at what's in that child's particular best interest. That said, there's been a, a tendency for pro-vaccination in the greater good. So we are seeing that, but we're not seeing pauses on you know, custody schedules anymore. Um, and we really are moving past 
that we're not seeing any conversation anymore about virtual versus in-person schooling. The schools are back, the schools are open. Um, we're not seeing commentary or you know fighting about masking versus unmasking. So we really are past, I think, some of those acute discussions. But what I think the lingering effects of the pandemic may be for custody moving forward is people are seeing what they saw as a different side of their fellow co-parent. So now I think they're being a little more cautious with how they're moving forward. People have either done one of two things. They've either changed their communication style with their co-parent to be even more open and active, or they've gone the opposite, the opposite direction. Most of my cases right now, we're back to managing the more quote unquote traditional custody issues. And we're not seeing as many of the COVID issues come up, but I think now it's just going to be something that's folded into you know, the, the generics that we include. I have a lot of clients now and we have a, you know, packaged set of, of language that to put in our generic custody orders to say, you know, in the event of a global emergency or a global pandemic, you know, the, both parties will follow the recommendations of science. Like we've had parties be afraid that that's something that's going to come up. And, you know, candidly, you can see the remnants of other issues like that in you know other agreements so i do a lot of adoption and surrogacy work and i was reviewing a carrier agreement for a client and i noticed there was language about zika because that was a huge issue coming up and and those who are being you know bitten by the mosquitoes carrying zika were getting you know impacts on their pregnancy and birth defects and that language survived you know the years later and was still in the agreement and then i noticed they had now put in global pandemic language so my thought is that it's not necessarily going to be something that affects us on a daily basis but it's just going to be one of those underlying tenants of custody that we see you know persist and you know what you you kind of alluded to something that is really important for people in this space is I think a lot of people look for an easy answer. They, they look outside of their co-parenting relationship for someone else to tell them what they should do or for someone to side with them and then tell the other spouse or the other parent what they should do. Mm-hmm. When I've always felt like, you know, we're dealing with families, right? Like we're not dealing with a defamation case, for instance, or, you know, a personal injury case. We're dealing with two people that have a child together and need to figure out how best to parent that child. So it always seemed a little odd to me to look outward like a judge to tell you what you should do. So it sounds like, has there been a little more level of cooperation you've seen, at least in your cases, for people making these decisions to co-parent together rather than have a really adversarial process? Have you seen an improvement there? Candidly, no, I haven't. But what I will tell you is one of the things that came out of the pandemic was a, a surge of mental health treatment. And I think that there, the pandemic was very difficult on a lot of people in a multitude of scenarios. Of course, it was you know, very difficult for people in the divorce scenario and co-parenting scenario. But what I have seen is more people being willing to take advantage of and utilize mental health tools and behavioral health tools. So we're seeing more people engage in individual therapy, which of course then trickles down to how they deal with and manage and co-parent. But also I've seen a lot more of a push for family therapy. So whereas I think people before were quick to say, I want my day in court, I want the judge to, to rule. Um, now they're hearing me a little bit more when I recommend and I say, do you really want a stranger making a decision for your family? They don't live in your home. They're not with you day to day. They're not the one getting your child up and dressed and ready for school. 
Now people are hearing that a little bit more. And when I make a recommendation for, hey, maybe you would like to see a co-parenting therapist, or hey, maybe you would benefit from family therapy, or maybe if your child is experiencing those kinds of anxiety symptoms, we get them into play therapy. So there's more, I think now of a ease of acceptance to seek mental and behavioral health treatment. And what that's done in our cases is it's allowed us to sort of break that he said, she said cycle. Usually it's mom versus dad and they're making a presentation to the court. Whereas when we can bring in a family therapist or a child's individual therapist or a parent's individual therapist, that person is now able to professionally provide an opinion to the court to help them make an educated decision. And I think clients are much more ready to accept that help and engage in those services. And it takes some of the decision-making power away from the court, which I think has actually been a very good thing. Absolutely. I've always wondered why people would go to a court, which is really to address legal issues, mm-hmm. to address things that, in my opinion, are not really even legal in nature. You know, how you should co-parent a child or, you know, things of that nature. It's not really a legal issue. Mm-hmm. I know there's some overlap because, unfortunately, because people can't agree on these things all the time, we do have to have law on it. We have to have a place where they can go to resolve those disputes. But I think when you boil them down, they're just not legal issues. I agree. I agree. And I think that's also a very fine line in family law because it is more emotional. It's about families. It's about your child. People come to their lawyers often as the first person that they express or talk to about their divorce. So they very often transfer some of that anxiety and that concern to us as their attorneys and then look to us to be everyone, to be their lawyer, their therapist, their best friend. And that's just not appropriate. And I've had to have that conversation with clients before to say something like, if you needed heart surgery, would you call your contractor? If you needed to put an addition on your house, are you calling your podiatrist? No, just the same as you're not calling your lawyer to get therapy. And there's, of course, things that I can understand and internalize and take on and then give them advice in the legal context. But if you're really looking for someone to tell you, should you or shouldn't you get divorced, I'm not the one you know, in that capacity professionally who's best suited to do that. Um, whereas before, I saw a lot of reticence to take my advice when I would say, allow me to send you some resources either for you know therapists or group sessions. Now I'm seeing a little bit more of, um, like I said, an ease of acceptance in that because people recognize that the law has limitations. So what would you tell somebody who is thinking about getting a divorce or maybe has already been through the process, but they're still having some issues? How should they approach how they regard their attorney? Like what, you know, you said not to use them for therapy. Hmm. Like what's, what's the most healthy and efficient way that someone should use their lawyer? That's a great question. And I think the best thing to do when working with your attorney is to understand that it's a professional relationship. You, of course, have to have a level of trust and we're both human, so you can look at it that way. But I think understanding that it's not appropriate to call at all hours of the day, that we still have a structured business schedule um, is one thing, but also honesty and candor and also recognizing that you're paying us and hiring us to give you advice. You're looking for that legal expertise. So I think the best thing that people can do is recognize that our job is to provide you all scenarios. Ultimately, the choice is yours as to how you want to follow it. But don't don't fight against us. Don't rail against us. Don't, you know, be defensive about things. We're on your team. So I want my clients to approach me as their teammate, as somebody who's going to guide them through the process. I very often say that I am also their translator. 
parties and, and lay people speak one language, a court speaks another, and I'm able to be that facilitator between the two. So I think people should recognize that we're here to help them, but they have to understand that there are going to be expectations that we set and we level and that, you know, we aren't miracle workers. We aren't going to be able to make magic happen. There's outside concerns and considerations that we can't control, but to approach us from a professional perspective with that underlying dash of, of understanding that we're human at the same time. Well, I've always said to people that I can't change who your spouse is. Yeah. You know, if your person is just not a nice guy or a nice lady or is a narcissist or bipolar, all those, those things that we constantly hear, I can't change that. And sometimes I think that's a it's a little difficult for people because they're sort of looking for you to just make a problem go away. Yeah. I say that a lot. I actually say, look, he's not going away. She's not going away. Um, and I think you're right. Some people want that to happen, but the sooner that people recognize that this is the person for better or worse that you were married to, that you had a child with, um, and we now need to deal with the circumstances as we find them. And rather than fight, that's sort of what I meant when I said, rather than fight against me, as you know, you're fresh, taking your frustrations out about the fact that you have to deal with this other person, accept and acknowledge and move forward to be a little more goal oriented. And you said you're going on your 13th year. Mm-hmm. So how do you feel like if you look back on your career thus far, how do you feel like your style has changed or evolved and how you help your clients? Because you've grown as a person, you Absolutely. have your own family. And I, and we've been through a pandemic, you know, how do you kind of look at life differently now? That's a great question. I think as much as I used to like to say that I could compartmentalize my personal life and my personal feelings and not let it bleed into my work that has certainly changed since becoming a mom myself. That has, that I think that somewhat naive uh, standpoint has changed, but I also think it served me very well when I was a child advocate working with children in the Philadelphia dependency system and being able to detach a little bit. But I, I think in terms of my style, I have always been disarmingly direct. That is something people will always say about me. But where I think I have gotten better is in tailoring my communication to allow clients to understand why I'm providing the advice that I'm providing, and then also setting that boundary with them and not necessarily letting their emotional you know, disruption bleed into the advice that I'm giving them. I think I'm much better at managing those boundaries and setting those expectations. I also think that a very common mistake young lawyers make is they look at things very black and white and only try to anticipate positive arguments to advance their client's case. One of the things I think I've gotten very good at honing is not only setting up the positive arguments for my client, but then also anticipating the other side and anticipating counter arguments so that I can then be prepared, you know, a couple of steps ahead from what my client's position is. And I think that people find that very helpful because it allows them to take out the narrow view a little bit that they might've had on their particular case point or case objective and understand that, hey, not everybody sees it this way. The court may see it a different way. And I'm giving them now multiple different avenues of strategy that I think works really well. I think the other thing that's changed for me is how I manage associate attorneys and other staff who work for me. I think that that has changed and evolved with the pandemic, but also with my years of experience that, you know, we have to treat associates and staff the way that we would want to be treated. 
And our firm strives really hard to make our firm a very human firm. If we as partners, you know, certainly say that we value family and that work-life balance, we want to give a little bit of that to our staff. Now, of course, you know, having worked in the field as long as we have and, you know, being the ones with the names on the door, there's a certain level that we, you know, afford ourselves that maybe not everyone has, but we don't want staff to be afraid to say, hey, I have a doctor's appointment, you know, at 10, can I leave to go do that? And I think pre-pandemic, there was a lot of fear that you had to be working on this grind and you couldn't even get basic needs like doctor's appointments met. Um, so that's something that I think we've really evolved or I've really evolved to change is to, you know, allow for some grace for my, my associate attorneys and for my staff as well. Sounds like a place I want to work. Are you hiring? <laughs> <laughs> we try, we try, we definitely try. And I think too, one of the things that the pandemic has also done is I'm a very big fan of, of overdressing for the occasion. So I was always, you know, wearing a dress and a blazer and heels to work. And, you know, of course, in the courtroom, that's what we want to see. We want to exude that professional image. But I've sort of loosened my grip a little bit on that in the office, um, especially now that we're not meeting with clients. I used to have a rule that, you know, if you are interfacing with a client, blazer on, um, no ifs, ands, or buts. But now, you know, I'm a little more comfortable coming in in, in a leggings outfit or, or something like that. So that's that's changed and I think evolved. And I've realized that you know, the quality of my legal work product isn't different. And the respect level that I have from my associates that I manage is still there. But I think that was probably a remnant of the old guard in, you know, have to wear that Navy suit every single day, you know, to the office. But I don't think that that's really the case anymore. And, and that's helped me feel a little bit more relaxed in my own work as well. Well, that brings up so many thoughts for me because one is that I think there's sort of this perception and by the public and and perpetrated by us too is that lawyers have to look a certain way. Like if you see a doctor, you expect them to have a white coat on, right? If what happens if they don't wear the white coats? You know, are they still doctors? Um, but also to look a certain way, to wear a suit. That's what it always looked like, to wear a suit. I, I've talked with you and other people about how women, at least historically, were expected to wear pantyhose. And, I'm you know, sorry. it was very, there was a stigma associated with not wearing pantyhose. You know, that was just totally inappropriate. Um, or even a pantsuit, mm -hmm. um, depending how far back you go, who yeah. you speak to. And so for me, there's a little overlap there too with, with women in the profession. And because, and I don't know if it's actually accurate to say anymore that law is a male dominated field. I don't actually know what the statistics are on it, but I think most law school classes now are 50-50. That's maybe another day, another conversation. <laughs> but it's interesting to me that when you said that you expected to someone to have a jacket on, and I just wonder if that's sort of left over from those days. And also you as a female attorney feeling like you have to try a little harder to, to earn that respect and look the part. So do you think that that's true? Am I totally overanalyzing this? No, you're spot on. And I think you're a hundred percent right when you say that my thought that I have to wear a blazer when interfacing with a client it is left over from the old guard. When I was in law school, we had sort of exit interviews with our, our career counselor. And one of the things that they would always coach us about was wear a black or a navy skirt suit for women, not pants, skirt suit. And you had to wear a neutral color shirt underneath. 
And if you look at my blazer closet today, it's a rainbow. So there's no navy and black only here. And I think you're also right that we are no longer a male-dominated field. We are more of an equal playing field, female and male. But there's things that are ingrained in us, both societally and also, you know, from our profession that make us feel like we have to overcompensate. So when I first started out, especially when I had my own practice, I started my own solo firm when I was only a couple of years out of school. And I felt like I had to assert myself in a way. And one of those ways was to look the part. So if people were looking at me as this young little girl, I felt like I needed to wear what what would project a different image and assert myself in a direct way or a more loud way um, to, to get them to, to notice me and take clout. What I think I quickly learned aside, you know, I kept dressing the part, but what I think I quickly learned was let my work speak for itself. The best marketing is word of mouth referral, you know, have the reputation of being a reasonable, good attorney. And I really have cultivated that over the years. Um, and I think that really, really rang true for me when I made a switch in my partnerships and I saw the loyalty that I, I got from a lot of my fellow colleagues in the bar. And when other people affirm for you, your reputation that you think you're putting out there and you hear it back from someone else, that's extremely validating. And I realized, and I think this is why I felt comfortable wearing leggings now sometimes in the office, that it, it, I don't have to hold so tight to looking the part that I can just be the part. Yes. I love that. Like that's, that's very quotable. Uh, yeah. And I was just thinking as you were talking that, you know, I've, I've always said, and I've learned this over the years. And when I was a baby lawyer, I wouldn't have, I would have been too afraid to kind of have this philosophy, but I think over time, you just realize that being authentic is well, first of all, so much easier. Just, just being you is easy. It's always easy to be you. It's really hard when you have to start thinking about some kind of facade that you have to build to, you know, have a certain image that's not even real because it's so hard to sustain. That's exactly it. It's not sustainable. And when in the, to put this in the context of clients and how we work with clients, I think I needed to come to the realization as I got older in my career that you're not going to be a good fit for everyone. Not everyone is going to like you and that's okay. So when clients come to me and, and they almost sheepishly say, you know, I'm interviewing other attorneys, I say, good, you should. You should interview a couple to see who you're the most comfortable with because this is an interaction and a working relationship surrounding your most precious commodity, your family and your children. So if you and I don't have a good communication rapport or a good vibe, it's going to make an already difficult process that much more difficult. So I'm no longer offended or and I no longer take it personally when I recognize that the relationship isn't going to work or the client doesn't hire me. There's a plenty you know, plentiful amount of work out there. So there's going to be another case that comes in the door, but it also is better if that case that comes up next after a client has perhaps passed on me is actually a better fit because then we'll work more smoothly together and it'll be a better experience for everyone. So mm. I think that's, that's been a big takeaway that I've learned as I've gotten older. Yeah. Getting rid of the things that you don't want just makes space for the things you do want to come yeah. into your life. Mm -hmm. Might sound a little woo-woo, but it's true. I mean, we've all had that one client or those two clients that were just draining mm -hmm. because you're not a good fit. Mm -hmm. And when you use up all your energy on those people, what do you have left for everyone else? For, exactly. Even for your own family when you get home. 
Exactly. And I've said that, you know, there's no sense banging your head against the wall for the difficult client when you know that it's not going to work out at the expense of 10 other really great clients that you're working with who you're not able to service as well because you're focusing all of your time and your emotional capital on this other person. And I think, you know, a lot of attorneys, young attorneys especially, make the mistake that they think they can't fire a client. They think it's always up to the client to decide who they want to work with. But, you know, we really do have a choice there will be more cases that come through your door. You will still make money, but spending your time with a client who tortures you is not going to do well for anybody. Plus, and I I said this earlier, um, we expect a level of professionalism and you want a client to come in and treat you like a professional. We're not a whipping post. So clients don't get to come in and take out some misdirected anger on us you wouldn't walk into your pediatrician's office or, you know, your dermatologist's office and start screaming at them. And people do that to us because of the nature of the work that we do in family law. And that's something I think I've also gotten better at over the course of my career is putting up that boundary, standing up for myself more and asserting what clients can and can't do and how they interact and communicate with me. Yeah, absolutely. I'm really big on boundaries too. And I think that's something that I've just learned over the years, you know, day one, I, th- I think it's typical for young attorneys and especially if you just started your own business to feel like, oh my God, I have to have money coming in the door, right? How will I support yeah. myself? So you kind of feel like you have to just take whoever shows up and wants to give you, I want to say a check, but that's, those are the old days, but you know, <laughs> wants to pay you. Um, but I've learned the hard way that that ultimately is, is not profitable, Mm-hmm. Um, I'm sure you've heard the saying, you make more money off the cases you don't take Yep. because, you know, the people that aren't a good fit are just going to be a problem. And mm-hmm. it's not even just your problem, but they're probably not going to have a good experience either. Exactly. And I think, you know, in the same vein of what I've learned as I've gotten older and, and more progressed in my career is I've listened to my gut a little bit more. So we do initial consultations and a lot of attorneys think of them as the interview for the client for us. But that's also our opportunity as attorneys to interview the client for ourselves and to decide if this is somebody that we wanna work with. So whereas before clients probably showed me a lot of their red flags in consultations when I was younger and and earlier in my career, I might've overlooked that. Now I'm I'm seeing those red flags right away and I'm deciding whether or not I wanted to find the case. And I'm fortunate enough that I have the leeway to do that, you know, as as a partner and an owner in a firm, but also I'm able to recognize it now more than I ever did before. So who's your ideal client? Like who, if you could create your avatar, who is it? What, what characteristics do they have? That's a really great question. So the ideal client for me is somebody who comes to the legal process, understanding the pros and cons, understanding the limitations, who's honest with me from the beginning, who tells me exactly what's going on, who's open to hearing my advice, someone who's communicative, who responds to my emails and phone calls, but isn't somebody who sends a barrage of emails, you know, 20 in a row, someone who's organized. So it's super helpful for me when I send clients a request for discovery, or I send them a custody complaint, and I want their, you know, responses and their version of the facts. Somebody who's just going to be open with me, somebody candidly, who I could see being friendly with or having a reaction or, or excuse me, a relationship with um, outside of the working dynamic of the divorce. So I think 
where clients probably fail is when they aren't cooperative with me in terms of deadlines and requests for information, um, when they are unwilling to hear my advice, when they're unwilling to get out of their own way sometimes. So the ideal client is the opposite of that. Somebody who gets me what I need when I need it, someone that helps me help them, someone that is responsive, communicative, not defensive, open to hearing my advice, and who treats me like a human and like an attorney in the appropriate settings to do so. I I don't think I'm searching for the holy grail when it comes to clients. I think that there are people out there like that. I have a a wonderful set of clientele right now. And I think that going back to what we were talking about, uh, as we advance in our career, we're able to find the client niche that we best serve. And, you know, people ask me all the time, do you represent more women or more men? I actually represent an equal amount. It's not about gender. It's more about personality and and the work style and how that person interacts with me as opposed to male versus female client. I think a lot of people assume that you lean towards men or women. And I, I think probably men assume that if you're a female attorney, that you lean towards women, but I totally agree with you. I think it has much more to do with the, the personality of the person and some of the characteristics that you just said. And when I asked you that question, who's your ideal client? Initially, I was thinking from a marketing perspective, Mm because I've had training in that is like an, a certain age, maybe a certain, you know, educational background or a high net worth or, you know, income bracket. But you didn't focus on any of that at all. Mm. You were more about the sort of the character traits that they have or personality characteristics that they have. And I think that's, that's interesting. That says a lot about you. Oh, thank you. I think that's also one of the big differences in my 13-year career versus my three-year career. I think at the beginning of my career, had you asked me who I was looking for, I absolutely would have described the socioeconomic person that I wanted. But I think I've already somewhat cultivated that. Um, And my business is solely referral based. We don't market, we don't advertise. So all of who I get in the door is through either my colleague referral sources or from past clients. So I think that there has sort of been an established understanding of who my base clientele is. So I'm not concerned about, you know, their ability to pay as much anymore as I am about their ability to communicate. The other thing too, is when someone comes from a referral and a trusted referral, they often are not just a tire kicker. They're somebody who knows someone who's worked with me directly or has, you know, vouched for me as a professional colleague. So they're ready to come in the door hiring an attorney. They're not someone I have to convince needs an attorney. They're somebody who knows they need an attorney. They just are trying to find out who. Um, So that I think is also why I don't focus on on the socioeconomic piece of it anymore. Um, And I'm advanced enough in my career to to know that my foundational referral sources, they do a little bit of initial vetting for me. So they know who's coming in and who they're sending to me. And, And, you know, I appreciate that. And I appreciate that my reputation precedes itself sometimes in those settings. Well, you know, I think a lot of people, laymen, think that, well, I'm just gonna go find this pit bull of attorney which we all know they're just going to, you're just going to end up paying more. You're Mm -hmm. not going to get resolved any faster or better because the law is what it is. 
Mm-hmm. Right. I mean, yes, there's some savvy involved with attorneys um, presenting a good case to the court and, you know, focusing yeah. on the your the strengths in your case. Mm-hmm. But I think overall, and I'm interested to hear if you disagree, I think overall, we all know that most of the attorneys that do this, they're competent to represent somebody. And what it's really going to come down to is more the personality dynamic between the client and the attorney, how, like you said, how they communicate with each other, if they're on the same page and advancing what that person wants and being able to communicate that effectively to the other attorney or the court. So what do you think about that? I I agree. And I think, you know, some, some people think that, you know, getting this done as quickly and painlessly as possible is better and as cheaply as possible is better. But the clientele, I think that comes, you know, to me understands that there are, you know, limitations. And one of the strategies that I've always taken with my clients, and I tell them this often at the initial consultation is I'm not the kind of attorney that's going to blow smoke. I'm not someone who's going to hear what you have to say as your goal and then say, absolutely, I'll make magic happen. I'm going to talk through your goal with you to help you understand, as you said, the limitations of the law, where the court just simply is what it is, and then how we can best accomplish your goal while understanding it's not going to be, you know, a hook, line and sink or slam dunk. So I think that's one of the things I've gotten more successful about in in my career is not over-promising to clients. And it's very clear some attorneys still do that. I have cases where, you know, it's very clear that the attorney has heard what the client wants and they're just taking it and running with it without, you know, actually giving that counsel. But I feel like I would be remiss if I didn't say to a client, no, that's not necessarily something a court is going to order, only to set them up for disappointment when the court does what I say they're going to do. So I think that doesn't do anyone a service, um, especially since they're going to spend more time, effort and money on something that's never going to happen. But there are attorneys out there who do that. That's just not my style. Yeah. I just had a consultation the other day with somebody who wanted something that in my opinion, they were not going to get mostly, I won't go into a lot of detail, but mostly because they couldn't prove what their allegation was. And I just know from my experience in the court, having done this for 18 years, that no judge was going to entertain it. And I could just tell that this person was just looking for somebody who was going to encourage them Mm -hmm. and say, yeah, we can do that. Mm -hmm. I can do that for you. Just pay me a $5,000 retainer. And, you know, I left the call knowing that this person would not retain me because I didn't give them the, what they were looking for, but they will find somebody who mm-hmm. will encourage it and take their money and they won't get a result. And I really feel bad for people like that. You know, I think like what you've been saying is when the client comes in, they do have to be receptive to listening to your expertise. You know, some people come in looking for a specific answer right? But then there's other people that come in and they have a question and they genuinely want to know what your opinion is. Right. Uh, how do you kind of weed those people out? Does it just become painfully apparent during the your meeting? I think it's very clear. Like you said, I've had consultations like what you just described before where the person asks a question and says, initially, I'd like to see XYZ happen. And then when you give them your assessment, 
they still go back to the original question. They say, but what about if we just get X, Y, Z? And then you start to realize very quickly that no matter what you say or no matter what logic you show them, they're very well grounded in what they think should happen. And that's what they want. And they're looking for just a hired gun. And that's not my style. And like you said, there are people out there who practice that way. Ultimately, I don't think that serves anybody, but you know, it is what it is. For me, I would rather be honest with the client up front. And I've had the experience that when I do say to a client, look, I'm going to be honest with you, it immediately disarms them. It immediately gets them to trust me a little bit more because there is a misconception that lawyers are a little smarmy sometimes. I think we're working very hard to get rid of that. You know, for every 10 good attorneys, there's one bad apple. But I think the more honest I am with the client up front of the consultation, the more they trust me initially. And that trust is the foundation of how we work well together or not in the future. Well, I agree with you because if you tell them what they want to hear just to make the sale, you're not going to be able to deliver that later. And then you're just going to have a client who's unhappy and disgruntled. Well, why did you tell me X, Y, and Z when I first met with you? Mm -hmm. Um, So I've never understood that. I'm sure you've had cases where it becomes apparent that the other side has very unrealistic expectations, probably based upon whatever their attorney's been telling them. And it makes it really difficult to settle the case. Mm -hmm. So how do you handle that when, when you talk to somebody, a client, and you just know because of the attorney that's on the other side that you know that this is going to be an uphill battle. How do you sort of prep them for that without, you know, bad mouthing the other attorney? Yeah, that's actually come up twice for me in the last, you know, couple of weeks. And I agree. I try to strike a balance. I don't need to call up my client and start just talking to a colleague. That's not, you know, beneficial for anybody. But I, I do utilize my experience just the same as I can say to a client, oh, I know judge so-and-so, this is what he or she expects in the courtroom. When an opposing party hires a various attorney or a specific attorney, I can also then go to, the, to my client and say, here's what we can expect. I think that that garners me a lot of trust from a client. So I always try to do that. However, I don't tell them an unpolished version of what to expect. I certainly temper that so that I don't heighten their anxiety or concern for the case that they may already have. But I will tell them, you know, especially in our initial consultations, clients often ask, you know, how long is this going to take? And I tell them that there's a variety of factors that can contribute. One of those factors is whether or not the other side hires an attorney and who they hire. So if they hire somebody who doesn't practice family law or who is a notorious bulldog for no reason, then that's obviously going to be part of our strategy. So the way that I weave it in is I try to soften the negativity about that other attorney, but I'm also not going to sugarcoat some of the expectation because then I find that that backfires. In the past, when I haven't told a client specifically about an MO from an opposing counsel, and then something happens, you know, true to form from that person, the client looks at me like I was unprepared or wasn't, didn't know what was coming down the pipeline. So when I say to a client, I know this is going to happen and it does, they just think, great, she knows exactly what's going on. She's on top of everything. She said this was going to happen and it did because they're looking to us for some level of consistency and control to make them feel better, to ease their anxiety through this situation. Um, so in the last couple of days, when I've had, um, a negative interaction with an opposing counsel who was clearly just towing the party line for the client. And she said some negative things about my client, called her some names that I thought were unprofessional. I'm obviously not going to go back to my client and say that, 
what I am going to say is something along the lines of, look, the conversation was not as productive as I would have liked. It's very clear that, you know, so-and-so is, you know, fully believing the other side and I'm seeing exactly what you described and, and validating them, you know, with what they have told me about the other party and then taking it from there into discussion of our strategy. And then allowing the client to feel strong about how we're going to attack that as opposed to spending time fixating on the negative of it. I feel like there's so many things that go on behind the scenes that clients just have no idea about. In fact, I know that a lot of things happen. And for instance, like emails that happen, you know how sometimes you have sort of informal email communication with an adversary and you're doing it. To, to further an end, right? To further a settlement or, you know, maybe there's a specific issue that you're kind of, you know, trying to be savvy about resolving it or a discovery issue or whatever it is. But it, it's always done with the intention of, you know, using your, what I like to call emotional intelligence to achieve a certain result and move forward on behalf of the client. And I do find that clients don't always appreciate all those things that do happen behind the scenes, which is understandable. They're not attorneys. They haven't done this. They're not supposed to know how to do those things. But I'm wondering, you know, what are your thoughts on that? And how do you kind of juggle that? I call it the sausage factory. They don't need to know the sausage factory. They don't need to know all these things that happen, like these informal private conversations that you'll have, for instance, where the adversary did nothing but badmouth your client. You don't need to go back and then tell your client that that's what happens. So do you, how do you feel about, like, I'm kind of interested what your view is on how to maneuver that. So I think that that is a balance that I've really had to strike. At the beginning of my career, I was you know, very concerned with what they teach you in professional responsibility, that communication, communication, communication is the biggest way that if you don't communicate, you can get malpractice and all this stuff. So I was always copying my clients on things, which I still do. I think that there, I find after knowing a client well, I have balanced whether or not copying them directly on an email or just following up with them in a separate email is better or forwarding them an email from counsel or, you know, showing them the entire chain. So I've been able to use my experience to decide what the client should and shouldn't see. In my own experience, when I was, you know, a client in a, a business matter, I was okay with, because I trusted my attorney for there to be some of the, you know, the sausage making, as you call it. I know that some clients, when they come to you, they're very anxious and they're very nervous that they want to make sure things are being done correctly. So sometimes you might copy a client a little bit more at the beginning of a case. And then as they trust you more, then, you know, you fall off on some of that. Um, but I think it's really going to be case by case sensitive. And I know for me, I've used my experience in figuring out the dynamic of the client and that personal client's, you know, style and sort of how they're situated when they've come to the case, but also in how successful I can be talking with an opposing counsel without the client there. So I know in my practice, I'm a little more informal when I'm not copying the client. And I think that adversaries have learned from me, those especially who have repeatedly worked with me, that when I do copy my client, it comes with a little more force, that I'm a little more aggressive about it. 
Um, but I also think that there's a certain level of professional courtesy that you have to provide to an opposing counsel. So maybe you send that one email with the client copy that's a little more formal, but you pick up the phone or you send a separate email saying, hey, the client really wanted me to push this issue. So I wanted you to understand the insight of why I was so aggressive on it. Or, hey, I'm just letting you know we are filing to modify. You know, she's really not going to relent on this issue. And I think that that has actually served me super well in building my positive reputation that I have with my colleagues because they know I'm not just going to pull, you know, bad faith moves. That is good lawyering. Thank you. It, it is because there, I've had clients, and I'm sure that you have heard this too, that they're so focused on, you know, how you behave. Like when we were going to court regularly, if you were friendly at all with mm. the adversary, there would be certain people that they didn't like that, that upset them. You know, they felt like you could not really represent them zealously or fight for them if you were being friendly with the adversary. And I've had to explain to many people that, you know, you want me to be able to be friendly with the adversary because when I'm not friendly with the adversary, when we're going at it and butting heads, basically what you have is now you and your spouse having difficulty and adversity, but now you've got the attorney. So now we've got like four personalities here that are all battling with each other. And I've always felt like the role of an attorney is to kind of, um, bring people together, you know, yeah. not inflame the situation. And it, I think that's hard for people sometimes to understand. And it's probably our responsibility to educate them in that respect. It sounds like you practice law the same way, but how do you feel about that? When you see people that use the word fight, like, I don't even like to use the word fight in my advertising because I don't feel like if you want someone to fight for you, that's not me. That's not what I want to do. If you need someone to represent your interests and advocate for you, then yes, but there's a difference. I so completely I'm agree. Completely. There is absolutely a, a difference. And there's an old adage that if you know the law, pound the law. If you don't know the law, pound the table. So there are attorneys out there who will just fight with you for the sake of it. And that doesn't do anyone any good. These cases are difficult in and of themselves because of the nature of what we're dealing with. And then to have an attorney fight you doesn't do anyone any good. So I agree with you. There are clients out there who are a little wary of you going up and saying to an adversary, friendly with them. But I say the same thing that you do. You want me to have that relationship with them. You want me to have that rapport. Whether or not it's something you view as us doing favors for each other, maybe it's in a positive way, maybe it allows us to give each other professional courtesies, agreeing to extensions or adjournments, agreeing to, you know, things because we trust in the other person. I've had attorneys say to me, hey, I told my client that I know you and that you're true to your word on this and that this is what you mean. And that's helped my client get, you know, to a settlement agreement. And I think that the more we bicker as attorneys, like you said, it's four personalities now instead of two. We don't need that additional you know, headache. And, and I think that clients need to understand right away that, that we're not you know, conspiring or in bed with somebody else. The ones who can't really get past that, I think are also not good fit clients. The ones that trust you enough to understand that you're advocating for their rights and that you're their counsel will trust you when you utilize the tactics that you need to, to utilize when dealing with opposing counsel. Yeah, I think it's short-sighted on, on behalf of the clients. Um, I'm Something comes to mind, this quote, I did you watch Ozark? 
No, no. Oh, I, I love Ozark. You have to watch it. It's over my, now. I think that's one of those ones that my husband cheated on me with. He watched it without me and I never got to catch up. Oh, uh, yeah. You should watch it. I love it. I want to watch it again. But there's this uh, seminal character on there. She's she's very rough around the edges and, you know, she curses a lot and she just very direct says what she wants. And she said to somebody one time, you know, and obviously it's about money laundering in a drug cartel. So like, you know, these people aren't, people aren't working in an office. And she says to this guy, you know, you're playing Candyland. They're playing chess. Mm -hmm. And I feel like I, I want to use that line so badly, of course, without offending anybody, but sometimes that's what, what it's like is, yeah. you know, the clients and, and I thought I've said this, you know, in a respectful way is that, look, I need you to trust me. You know, if you trust me, if you don't trust me, you should go find someone you trust. But if you trust me, I really need you to trust that I know how to do this in the right way. You know, what you see on television is just not the way that it really is. Mm -hmm. And there are a lot of things that go on behind closed doors and conversations that are had, and it might not always look the way you think it should, but I need your, I need to assure you that I'm doing everything I can to get you, you know, the best possible result and get this done for you. And I find, like you've said, just being really direct and upfront about that when I see them going down that rabbit hole and just saying that to them, because I'm not a trained monkey. Mm -hmm. I'm not here to balance a ball on my nose. Mm -hmm. If you just need to, me to put on the show so that you can feel good, I don't feel good about doing that. Yeah, I agree. I love that quote. You're playing Candyland, but they're playing chess. I think that really sums it up. And that's how I look at my practice, though. Like I was saying to you earlier in our interview, I'm not just looking at what my client wants me to advance. I'm anticipating counter arguments. I'm anticipating counters to those counter arguments. That's my job. So I agree with you. If a client doesn't have enough trust in you to let you use your expertise that we've honed over, you know, the over a decade's worth of, of experience that we have, then they may be in the wrong place. And some of that is their own anxiety manifesting in a different way. And I get that to a certain extent, but you've hired me to work for you on your behalf in a specific arena. And you should let me as a professional, you know, utilize the skills and tactics that I have. On the other hand, I agree with you. We are not trained monkeys. Like we're not here to dance for them. So if they don't like some of our strategy or tactic, or they don't trust us, or, you know, they want a whipping post, then again, that's not a relationship that I think is fruitful and we go our separate ways. But I think the clients that are insecure about the communication, they very often are projecting that. Maybe they had insecurities about paranoia or things that were going on in the marriage and they're projecting it now, you know, in, in, the, in the divorce relationship with their attorney. So we never know what people are coming to these relationships with. Um, but I agree, highlighting them as I see them with a client and recalibrating to get back on the same page has really worked well for me rather than letting it sort of, you know, run away with itself. So maybe touching on a more, more personal issues, what have you learned about marriage from being a divorce lawyer? That's something that I get asked all the time. How can you be married and be a divorce attorney? Or isn't your husband scared that he's married to a divorce attorney? And I actually think that it has only strengthened my marriage. Every time I see mistakes that people make in their own marriages that have led them to divorce, it's something that I then internalize and understand and try to implement in my marriage. So if I see somebody, 
not being um, vocal about their needs and wants, if I see someone not communicating, if I see people not on the same page about finances, those are things that in my mind are flags. So then in my marriage, I try to go the opposite way. I also am very appreciative of my own husband and I know how lucky I am with him. And I try to also say that. So I think some of the downfalls people find in you know, the demise of their own marriage is they only focused on the negative and they were always bickering and they were picking at each other and they never complimented each other or highlighted the positive. So in my own marriage, sure, you know, we bicker like everybody else, but I also make sure I take time to say, hey, I really appreciated that you did X, Y, Z today, or you're a really great dad. I saw how, you know, hands-on you were with Vivian today. So I think that also helps, but really it's just looking at the mistakes that other people made that led to the demise of their marriage and trying to do the exact opposite thing in my own. Can you give some more examples? Like if there's somebody who's watching, maybe they're divorced, maybe they need a little tip for the next marriage or just, you know, somebody who wants to get the insight of a divorce lawyer. Like, are there more like kind of specific action that you would recommend like a date night or I don't know? Yeah. I I think, um, one of the biggest things is when people live in separate bedrooms. So what I notice with my clients is there's usually a breaking point or a tipping point where things take a turn. Um, sometimes it's when they have kids and when people co-sleep. So now they're not in the same bedroom and they haven't put their marriage at the focal point of the family. They've put the children at the focal point and then they just drift. I've had clients point blank say to me, I knew my marriage was over when I had my twins because they were now more important to me than my spouse was. So I think that's, um, something that I highlight and I, I try to manage in my family is of course, I love my daughter more than anything, but my marriage is extremely important to me. So we do date nights. In fact, during the pandemic, there was this really cute, um, subscription box service called happily. And they would send you boxes of curated date night stuff based on your interests and experiences. And there was always like, conversation starters or a a cooking project to do together or an activity or a puzzle to solve. And when we did them, um, we actually said, look, let's put phones aside and do this, you know, without that. And I I loved it. And I think my husband did too. It brought us a lot closer. Um, Date nights are a big thing. Talking about things when they come up as opposed to letting them fester. That's a big thing that I see clients talk to me about. They'll say, you know, I should have brought this up six months ago, but I didn't. And now I'm pissed. And now here I am talking to you as my divorce attorney. So that's that's a big one as well. And making sure you connect and, and continue to maintain intimacy. And I'm not just talking about sex. I'm talking about true, you know, emotional intimacy, sleeping in the same room, making sure you look each other in the eye, not just being two ships passing in the night, you know, walking back and forth, you know, about your daily grind. Um, And I am certainly no marriage expert. I'm not here to say that it's, you know, easy peasy all the time. But I think um, making sure that your marriage is that focal point and keeping it there is, is really helpful. Another thing too is I find a lot with divorcing couples that they're very nasty to each other. They use Mm. words as weapons and they don't realize that words sting. And also you can't put that toothpaste back in the tube. Once you've said that to somebody, you can apologize, but they'll remember it. And I've learned that from my own experience, um, especially as somebody who likes to lawyer my spouse in personal fights. 
much to his chagrin. Um, but those are sharp words that you can't always take back. And I, I think that people don't realize how they come across sometimes, especially with their spouses and, and what somebody can hold on to that ultimately becomes a crack that expands and a reason for divorce. Those are all great insights. Thank you. And you don't have to be a marriage expert. You know, you kind of are on, on some level just because of what you do for a living. Cause we, yeah, I think you learn more from the situations that don't work mm-hmm. than you do from the situations that do work. You know, yeah. I could talk to someone who's been happily married for a million years and then talk about all these wonderful things that they have in common. But I've always thought for, and I've gotten this insight from doing what we do. I think the real test is when there's conflict you know, how do you resolve those things? Yeah. And a lot of that's what you're saying. Completely agree. And and I think that, um, and this comes up a lot in our cases, your client may have the side of right, but the method of how they've chosen to convey it loses the credibility for them. So that's, I think, one of the big things I've learned is that how you deliver your message, how you interact, how you communicate with your partner, you know, is something that's important because a lot of what I see and people send me screenshots of text conversations and tell me or relay to me the conversations that they've had with their soon to be ex-spouses. And they're often right in the, in the kernel of what they're trying to say, but they just didn't deliver it well, or they're, they're not able to receive each other's communication. So that, that can be an issue as well. And I think, you know, as we are doing this sort of as my check-in for my, you know, next phase of my career, entering my 13th year, I don't think I could have told you any of this at year three. This is not something that, you know, I learned, you know, quickly or immediately. And um, certainly not something that I learned, you know, in my younger years. It took years of examples being put in front of me and navigating them for clients and then also seeing it in my own household and being able to implement what I've learned. But I think, you know, people, like I said, they joke that my husband should be scared. He's married to a divorce attorney. I think he benefits from it. Yeah. You know what? I think you're right. I think you're absolutely right about that. Scared of what? (laughs) I don't know that I'm going to take all his money and never let him see his kid again because people have a very, very negative um, perception of the divorce process and they hear the horror stories. And like you've said as well, they see what's in movies and TV and they think that it's going to be this, you know, knockdown drag out. And that's not always how it has to be. I know I have no intention of ever, ever, ever getting divorced, but I know that I would never want my child not to see her father. And I think that's, you know, one of our colleagues says this all the time that you have to love your child more than you hate your spouse, your ex-spouse. And, you know, some people don't get that, but, you know, that's part of our job to help them see through that and and make sure that they don't get blinded by that rage to get to the end result. Yeah. You have to, you have to be able to put your child first and that requires a lot of self-control and a lot of self-awareness. Yeah. We see the worst examples of that all the time. Mm -hmm. There was a judge that I worked with one time who said that he kind of made this observation that you know, people who are getting divorced, you know, likely have gotten there because they couldn't communicate effectively with each other. And what you see happening in the divorce is just more evidence of that. It's, it's really at the root of it. It's them not being able to really communicate effectively with each other. A hundred percent. I see it all the time. Like I mentioned, clients often will send me screenshots of text communication back and forth with their spouse. And it's 
absolutely glaringly obvious what the issue is from an outsider, but because they're so in it, they can't see it. And I've had clients specifically send me communication like that so that they can get that outside perspective. There's varying levels of whether or not a client is willing to take your advice on it. Some, you know, don't listen and keep, you know, putting their hand on the hot stove, but, you know, others, others don't. And and I think that you're right. The reasons that they were unsuccessful in their marriage are going to persist in divorce. It's another reason that I suggest things like co-parenting counseling. It's another reason why the court will suggest mediations. It's because, you know, you can't keep doing the same thing and expecting a different result. Do you ever recommend that somebody go to counseling just to sort of figure out what went wrong in their marriage so that they don't unwittingly pick the same person again? Because people do that. Yeah, that's a really interesting point. No, I, I'm never focused on somebody um, trying to learn from the divorce process to get another mate. Most people are so can't even think about dating again or, or you know, being with someone again that that's not something I talk about. But when I do offer, you know, therapy and I have my resources that I provide, sometimes it's more for them to examine if they want to get divorced in the first place, like if they're waffling back and forth about a filing, or if it's not necessarily divorce-centered counseling, but it's more individual therapy, because sometimes people have their own underlying issues that they've come to, you know, their marriage with, and then the marriage exacerbates them. So I, I will have them focus on the marriage and themselves, but not necessarily for a view to, you know, finding a new mate. The only time that I do talk to people about not wanting to repeat the mistakes of the past is with prenuptial agreements. Um, and I think that a lot of my, my clients that I've worked with, if I'm wrapping up their divorce and I know that they have a significant other and I know that they have a fiance or I know they're planning to get married, I will just gently remind them, you know, loved working with you, but do you want to repeat this experience? And I, I say, you know, better safe than sorry. Let's get you that prenup. And then hopefully you never have to deal with me again and you live on and happily ever after. That is excellent advice. I think I need to focus on that more too. It's very hard to convince someone who's never been married before to get a prenup because they see it as, you know, planning to divorce or they see it as bad luck or, you know, just bad Yeah, unromantic. But I think the other thing too, that is also really important for them to realize, I try to point it out, but you know, deaf ears sometimes is if you can't talk about that and it's not, you know, and maybe it might be an awkward conversation or a hard conversation. If you can't do that and you're avoiding having a hard conversation, I feel like that's a little bit of a red flag because you should be able to have hard conversations with the person that you are about to marry. And if you can't, you're, you're going to have other problems down the road. Yeah, I completely agree. I think that with prenups, they're a completely touchy subject. Um, I saw candidly a lot more prenups during the pandemic because of all the wedding cancellations. So people were looking to sort of freeze frame when they would have gotten married, knowing that they weren't sure when they actually would. So that was nice to see um, that people were willing to do that. But the way that I describe prenups is they're like an insurance policy. You drive your car every day. You don't want to get into an accident. You don't hope you're going to get into an accident, but you still carry insurance in the event that you do. It's the same thing. Your prenup becomes an insurance policy that we hope you stay married for years and years. But if you don't and you get divorced, now you have that insurance policy to take out of your drawer. Um, But when I 
talk to a client who's gone through a divorce, they're much more ready to do a prenup, you know, for that second time around. But I agree with you, a first time, you know, client or first marriage or someone who's young and thinks, oh, I don't have anything or any of that, you know, that's, that's a different story. But when I couch it to them the way that I just explained to you with that anecdote, sometimes it does make it a little bit clearer. Well, what would your response be to this? If we're going to get divorced, I hope we don't, but you know what? We're throwing ourselves into this and we're committed. And if it doesn't work out, then whatever, whatever will be, will be whatever, however the divorce goes is how it goes. So my response to that is usually, don't you want to take some control over your future? Now the law is there certainly to guide us, but it's not absolute. It's not black and white. There's always going to be argument in both sides. And why not, if you've already come to the hard realization that you have to get divorced, why not make it as easy for yourself as possible and have that roadmap of how you're going to divide your assets and do so in a mindset now where you're happy as opposed to when you're upset and, you know, in a sort of crisis point. And I think that people don't realize that the law also doesn't always match with common sense. So you might think, well, just, you know, what will be, will be, we trust the law is going to divide everything appropriately, but you may not have the informed knowledge to know that something may be on the table for division that you didn't think you wanted to share. So I think at least educating yourself on some level before, you know, deciding whether or not you want a prenup is the way to go. I'm wondering if it's similar to why people never get their will done. Although we all know we're going to die. You might not get a divorce, but we all know that we're going to die at some point. Yeah, agreed. We actually took on an up-counsel attorney um, who specializes in estate planning because of that, because we found that so many people after they were either done facilitating prenups or finishing up their divorces or finalizing adoptions in every area of law that we practice for for families, they were then taking that next step of, of planning for their will, but they didn't have it beforehand because again, they weren't, you know, operating under the assumption that even something inevitable was necessarily going to happen. But I think that the divorce or the family transition event showed them that, yes, this can happen. And I do need to plan for that. And that's why they take that extra step to, you know, get their will done or their estate plan done. Well, it's funny because it must be like younger people are reluctant. You know, they think they have so much time to get their will done. And I hope they do. Most of them probably do, but for, we don't know. Right. So I just, it's kind of funny, you know, we can laugh at it where, well, I don't need to get my will done right away. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm young, you know, it's like, really, you know, when you're going to die, how do you know that? It's one thing that the pandemic taught us is that things can change on a dime. So you want to be as prepared as possible. I get that that's not in everybody's personality, but one of the things I think I try to provide for my clients is resources for all options, putting it out there for them. If that's what they'd like to take advantage of, we have the option to do it at our firm. If not, then, you know, the choice is theirs. So then I want to go into something, uh, deviate from law a little bit and talk about you as a businesswoman and an entrepreneur, because you are, and I know you recognize that, but a lot of people, when they start their own firm, kind of forget that you're a business owner now. Yeah. So do you feel like there's a distinction between lawyer and firm owner? Oh, that's a really good question. Yeah, I do. I think that the decisions that I make in my practice um, are certainly different as 
an employer and an independent business owner than when I was an employee. And there are certain things that, you know, you have to worry about more or balance more. Um, I don't think I could ever go back to working for someone else. I, I did so very, very, very briefly at the very beginning of my career when I came out of school, sort of in the height of the recession. Um, and then I worked for the public defender's office as a child advocate where I was cutting my teeth and honing my skills. Um, but then I went right into private practice and I learned how to run a business on the fly. They do not teach you how to run a business in law school. Um, so I think that over the last, you know, 12, 13 years, I've learned how to structure not only my, my caseload, but with the management style um, of how I work with my employees. And you're right. I mean, it is two separate hats. There's the legal mind side and then the business mind side. And thankfully, I'm able to not, you know, worry as much about the day-to-day -day business side of it because we do have a steady stream of cases coming in, but that wasn't always the case. And, you know, I did have to think about networking and marketing and, you know, cultivating those relationships so that cases would come in in that steady stream. What are your favorite parts that you like to work on in the business? Oh, that's really interesting. So I'm really big on social media. Um, I built my solo practice on it. I think, you know, coming in as an unknown commodity and people not knowing who I was, um, I needed to make sure they they knew and I they needed to know what I practiced and how I practiced and where I practiced. So I would post whether it was creating original content or really just sharing other topical family law, you know, links three to five times a day. I would post on all the platforms at the time and I would do everything I could to make sure I was consistently out there. I started a, a newsletter, an email newsletter that people still tell me that they, they get. So, you know, I think that that was always something I saw tangibly help me create my business. So I'll never give up on social media. That's a big piece, whether we like it or not, it's here to stay. And I think that, you know, managing and learning and helping cultivate associate attorneys, especially ones who truly want to learn and be good attorneys. I love doing that as well. Um, and I really like working with my partners. It was lonely being a solo practitioner. And some of the things I missed um, about having an office, you know, with other attorneys was I wasn't able to bounce case strategies off anybody. When there was a business issue that came up, I was sort of having to turn to outside professionals, like maybe my CPA instead of internally. Um, it's somebody else to help share the burden. You know, recently my assistant asked me why the three of us don't manage our one, you know, summer intern. Why? Why would the three of us do that? We divide and conquer. So maybe someone manages our Villanova student while the other one manages the Drexel one. And then somebody does the AR emails while the other person is helping train our associate. There's no reason for all of us to do every little thing. And sure, we, we reconnect, we regroup, we talk to each other about everything. But that was one of the biggest benefits I found to, you know, learning to relinquish some of that control, give away some of the duties and responsibilities, and then rely on partners who I trust to help me, you know, do that. And a partnership is not for everybody. I always say that a, you know, business partnership is like a marriage. I've been through a business divorce and it's not fun. So the partners that I'm with now are my, my legal soulmates for sure. So I think that we are so situated in such a way that we're not going to, you know, dissolve, but it took a while to find that. And you have to have that level of trust. You have to have the same work style. You have to have the same understanding and, you know, communication and practice technique and vision for your firm. Because if you don't have the same vision and you don't have the same 
client management expectations, then you're not going to be successful. You're going to want to diverge on different paths and that's going to clash. So speaking of your vision, what is the vision? So that's great that you asked because we always say we're a boutique firm. You're getting the attention of a solo practitioner with the brain trust of multiple partners. And we are very much a human firm. So we are not tethered to everyone must be at their desk at at nine and must leave on the dot of five. You know, if you're getting your work done and you come in at 10, that's fine too. We very much wanted our firm to be one that took on a human aspect that understood that if we needed to work from home one day because our child was sick, we could. That if your child needs to be sitting in your office on a, you know, iPad because they're out of school, they can. Um, And also we very much so don't want to be a churn and burn kind of firm. There are a lot of firms out there that market and rake in cases and treat people like numbers. And that's not our style. We know when we're over, you know, over our bandwidth and when we need to push pause on accepting new cases. It doesn't happen often, but it does. And when it does, we know that limitation. We want clients to know that we're not necessarily here to just, you know, turn over cases. We want to actually be able to work in a, in as stress-free of a way as possible to benefit them. So do you see yourself continuing on practicing law for, you know, until you retire, until you're a little old lady and you retire, or do you see yourself being more involved in the business aspect? Which part do you like better? You know, for a while, I thought that I was going to segue more into the business management part of it. But then I started to find that I really missed the actual practice of law. And that was really compounded by the fact that when I couldn't actually get into the courtroom to sort of perform, for lack of a better word, that I missed it. And I remember one of my first cases back in person, um, I really enjoyed my client. He was a doctor. So he fully put his trust in me. He was like, look, this is not my arena. But I remember one time I came back to sit down at the table after a cross-examination session. And he was like, you just seemed so comfortable up there. So I knew I could never really leave the actual practice of law. And I think I had to learn that the hard way a little bit by taking a step into business administration more. But also, I don't want to run my law firm like a true, you know, Fortune 500 company. I don't want to be a CEO. I want to be a lawyer who runs a business, not a business who's run by a lawyer. And I think that there's a distinction there. And, you know, you can still be a smart business mind and run your business well without having it be something that changes the nature and quality of how you practice law. I personally don't think that I can do both, service the level of clients that I want to, and only exclusively run a business. But I also think that law practice can be streamlined and run more effectively and efficiently simply, as opposed to what some people believe, where it has to be very technical and systems-based. So that's just, you know, my experience. And again, I had to learn it the hard way. So do you have anything else? I mean, what's on your bucket list, you know, as far as... Uh, work or professional achievements? Yeah, I would be lying if I said that I didn't think about what I could do if I was not a lawyer. There are certainly other passions and interests that I have. I just don't know if um, they would be my main focus or focal career. For now, I think that this is it for me, that I want to continue to run my law firm and practice law. But, you know, I'm 37. I don't know what the next 30 years are going to hold. If, you know, you had told me that I would be where I'm at now, 
at the beginning of my career or when I was just leaving law school, I don't know if I would have necessarily believed you because I couldn't have predicted a recession. I couldn't have predicted a pandemic. Um, and I didn't know what any of that looked like, but I'm open to all opportunities. And I think for me, focusing on the law, maybe some other opportunities as they come up, I'm always open to it. That's why I'm super intrigued you know, by the work that you do in terms of investigating and interviewing and why I find so much value in conversations like this, because it's, it, it's a different view into our, our careers. Yeah. I, well, I always say I'm, na I'm naturally nosy. So it makes me, th this is a perfect fit for me being able to pry into your life <laughs> and you actually answer my questions. I love to answer your questions. So it's a great fit. <laughs> well, thank you. I appreciate it. I don't think you've ever declined to answer no, no. And, and I think, you know, aside from, you know, the personal, you know, enjoyment I get out of it, I think that a lot of people need the information. I think that there's a lot of internet information out there, a lot of incorrect internet information out there. And people start their search for attorneys and for information on family law by Googling and looking at social media. So why not put good information out there for them to access? Yeah, I'm with you. I mean, I, I think that people, I'm told that people hire who they know, like, and trust. That's mm -hmm. what the sales training people say. And, but it's true. I mean, think about it, who the people that you hire, you know, doctors, lawyers, other kinds of professionals, you have to like them mm -hmm. and you, it's natural to want to know something about them, you know, other than where maybe they went to school or what their credentials are, mm -hmm. but who are they? What are they about? You know, are they about family? Do they like to travel? You know, what kind of person are they? So that, I think this kind of satisfies that. I agree. And that brings up a really good point. When I first started practicing, I was very close to the vest about my personal life. So I wouldn't necessarily share that I was, you know, with a significant other or married. I wouldn't necessarily share where I lived, where I grew up. Um, but then I started to realize that that actually really ingratiates you with somebody. So then I started sharing more about like commonalities that I might've recognized with the client or empathizing with them saying, look, I have a toddler too. I get it. So I found now, and maybe this is a post pandemic thing as well, but the curtain is down a little bit about, you know, the privacy level and letting people see me for, you know, who I am as a person, as well as their lawyer. Yeah, I guess it's a little bit like, I don't know if you follow Brene Brown, like being vulnerable. Yeah. It's a little bit like that. Yeah, I agree. All right. Well, I think we should do this again in maybe a year and a half, two years. And, you know, I love that saying, uh, life is what happens when you're busy making other plans. There you so go. we will see how things go over the next year or so and what actually happens while you are making plans. <laughs> I, look, I look forward to reconnecting and checking in then and seeing where, where I am at that point. Awesome. Well, thank you. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Wake Up Call, the podcast. I hope you enjoyed this episode. If you'd like to know more about me, you can find out more on my website, christinaprevitt.com. And be sure to sign up for my newsletter where I talk about everything that I'm reading, learning, listening to, doing, basically everything that I'm obsessed with right now. Follow me on social media. Look up Wake Up Call the Podcast on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. If you'd like to be a guest on Wake Up Call or there's someone you'd like to hear on my podcast, please email me at wakeupcallthepodcast at gmail.com. Thank you and see you next time.